0: From This American Life and WBEZ Chicago, it's serial. One story told week by week. I'm Sarah Koenig. This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. Hey everyone, I'm Heaven. I'm Tracy. And this is another round with Heaven and Tracy. (laughs) This is Alec
1: Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. My channel. This is
0: Invisibilia, stories
1: about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. I'm Elise Spiegel, and I'm Lula Miller. The
2: BS Report. Now entering nerdist.com. If you're listening to this, then obviously you're either a fan of podcasts or you're willing to give them a try. And podcasts certainly appear to have emerged as a much bigger cultural force in the last couple of years. But how big a deal have they become, really? And how big of a business opportunity do they represent for their creators, for media companies, for advertisers? And maybe most important of all, what should you be listening to? Welcome back to Alpha Chat. I'm Cardiff Garcia, and here today to answer all these questions is Shannon Bond, the FT's media correspondent who has written about all this before. Hello, Shannon. Hi, Cardiff. And we're also joined by Nick Kwa, who writes probably the single best repository of knowledge about podcasts and the podcasting business in the shape of a weekly newsletter called The Hot Pod where he chronicles new podcasting trends and adds his own personal criticism and commentary and recommendations and all kinds of other things. It's really great. Hello, Nick. Hello, Cardiff. All right, Shannon, first question to you then. It feels like podcasts are having this big moment. It feels like they're everywhere. They're great. All three of us listen to a lot of podcasts, but... Do we have some numbers on this? I mean, can you put this into context for us? How big a deal have they really become?
0: Yeah, so they've definitely been growing, but it's a niche audience. It's small. It's forty-six million Americans uh, who listen to a podcast every month. That's recent numbers from Edison Research, um, which has been tracking the podcast boom. Uh, and so that's like that's a good that's a good amount of people, but that's also 17% of the adult population. So, you know, this is definitely like a smaller group that is growing. But has a long way to go before we talk about being really, you know, at the scale of TV or even terrestrial radio.
2: Sure. But, like, I hear that number and I still think it sounds like a lot relative to where it was a few years ago. I mean, the trend is heading higher, right?
0: The trend is definitely heading higher. And you're seeing it's not just that those people are, like, regular or they're listening. A lot of people are listening. It's that those people are regular listeners. Those people are coming back week after week or maybe even day after day to listen to podcasts. They're
2: resilient listeners. We're going to talk about why that matters in a little bit. But, Nick, I want to talk to you because you're – You're here because you're our favorite podcast obsessive, if that's not too strong a word. That's very nice of you. Um, Put this into even more historical context here. So Shannon just cited some numbers on what's happened in the last couple of years, but podcasts themselves have been around in, in a form that you would recognize as the modern form, I guess, for about 10 years. What happened exactly that made them take off recently?
1: Well, let's put it this way. It started gaining some sort of traction and popularity as a technique of distributing audio somewhere around late two thousand four, early two thousand five, is built on a very similar logic to that of RSS feeds. I think it's the very same logic as RSS feeds. Even actually, the person who did propagate the early uses of podcasting was the same person who developed the RSS feed, David Weiner. And it was uh, called audio casting or something like that. Before, audio casting, was it was called casting, and at some point, uh, some random journalist coined the term podcasting, which is uh, you know, um, the iPod, apartmento, yeah, of, uh, of, podca- of iPod and broadcasting. But So in the years after that initial traction, it was just mostly popular among a small niche of you know, tech geeks and audiophiles. And it felt and it seemed, and I say this only in retrospect because I, I wasn't really there or wasn't really participating in that early years. He's it's, very young, folks. Yes, yeah, so I'm fairly <laughs> I'm a child. Um, it felt a lot like blogs. It looked like blogs. The use cases were like blogs. The people who did it and they did it in such a way and they performed it in such a way that it felt very much the early days of pre-Breitbart blog. Um, And then so it sort of kind of grew steadily and quietly. It did gain some mild media traction in the beginning because media is always in crisis and the media is always shifting and ever more so now than it is back then. But the feeling was that, you know, this could have been the next big thing. It didn't really happen because it didn't really explode in the way that major investors wanted it to. And so the attention sort of died off. And that's why right now we're hearing, you know, it's a revival of interest or it's a, we're returning to a golden age or, or, or renaissance or something like that. And I think you can pin that down on two particularly historical uh, cultural moments. One is popularity of cereal and the other would be sort of the formation of the organization or professionalization of podcast networks, and that you can pinpoint that to Gimlet with Alex Moonberg specifically. Sure. But Hang on
2: for a second. So the popularity of Serial for our listeners, um, especially abroad who aren't as familiar with this phenomenon, Serial is a podcast about a true crime that happened some 15 or so years ago in the city of Baltimore, But it became this mega hit, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. it it became this kind of at least U.S.-based phenomenon. Right.
1: It became the most downloaded uh, and, ergo, the most successful podcast of all time. I think four or five million great sort of way of phrasing it. it is more people listen to than probably watched Louis, girls, you know, higher brow. Television shows in the U.S. Yeah, yeah.
2: Shannon, let's talk for a minute about why we love podcasts, why uh, we think there are I guess specific attributes that you can assign to podcasts that make them so great. What's so appealing about them, at least to you?
0: The the word that comes up when you talk over and over again with podcast people, whether they're the advertisers or the people who are making them or people who like listening to them, is that it's intimate, right? So it's in your ear. There is a host or there are a panel of people talking, and it's like you're getting to eavesdrop on a conversation, and it's there's something very personal about that it's right there and you know for me you know my i really got into podcasts around the same time that i really got into running and for I, what I found is I got I was, I was training for a half marathon and long runs got really boring after a while and there's kind of only so much music at some point and for me to take my mind away it was great to sort of just tune into something you know immerse in a story or in a conversation and so there's something about that it's also like the multitasking you can be on the subway you can be in your car driving you can be doing the dishes it's media you consume while you're doing other things and people have incredibly busy lives we see that we're all doing much more sort of multimedia all the time and this is something that you can consume while doing something else. And I think that's a big part of what's been the the boom in interest.
2: But you said something I think it's pretty important and you said it almost as a throwaway, which is that people are listening to it in their cars. That's actually a... Big part of this story, right?
0: Yeah. And that will sort of that opening up even more, I think, will be the thing that's kind of will be the next level for podcasting. So we're at the era now of connected cars. So people are now familiar with having, say, Sirius XM uh, or being able to plug their iPhone into their car and listen to whatever they want directly. And so podcasts are a big part of that. You know, Nick mentioned a couple of the sort of milestones along the way, and a big, a big part of this was technological. You have, first of all, you had the iPod, then you had everyone's iPhone in their pocket, and now uh, the most recent version of the of iOS, the operating system broke podcasts out as a separate app so it's just there on your home screen it would alert you when there's a new podcast and that you know that pushed a lot of uptake people suddenly were like oh here's something I want to listen to I can know when it's on it's that sort of you know, on-demand you know Netflix style like I can just jump in and listen the way I went binge watch right and so now being able to do that in your car I mean one of the next steps people talk about is you know once you have these connected cars where you have a screen in your dashboard and God knows what that does for safety but if you have the sort of thing where you get in your car you turn on you hit one button and there's your podcast that will you know where it's as easy to listen to as FM radio. That will be like a huge step forward and a lot more people listening because we're spending much more time in our cars. Not us in New York, but other, <laughs> there are there's a big country out there.
1: Right, Nick, you agree with that? Oh, you know, Middle America. That's that's where the money's at. <laughs> you
0: know? uh, the idea though,
2: uh, Shannon mentioned the intimacy of podcasts. How important do you think that is to advertisers, and and why does that distinguish? podcast from anything else because you would hope that if you're the maker of a tv show um or of anything else really that that would be also an intimate experience there's something different about podcasts explain that
1: so that's interesting. So, let's break that down to two parts sure. right like so there is the aspect of intimacy it's the big buzzword that's associated with this medium um, but the question is like really why is it intimate and how is it intimate and that's something that feels a little bit uh, you know under understood okay um It's because it's literally in your ear. It's most of the formats, most of the the higher quality podcasts that exist and are popular involves, uh, you know, central cast of characters. Maybe they're hosts, maybe it's a narrator, maybe it's a curator. But at any given point of time, there is this implicit trust that you place upon the person. Um, And that's kind of, I mean, this is kind of like a tangent, but it's kind of why, you know, fictional podcasts or audio dramas aren't really talked about in the same vein with podcasts, and that's what kind of podcasts are being thought about as a journalistic or, you know, a variety A form. non-fiction form. A non-fiction form, form yeah. exactly. And so, but, and so it really sort of is baked into that trust. Now, when you bring in advertising to that, it kind of makes it a very good fit for native advertising. But I think that's only true for right now, because, for example, Gimlet has Reply All, and a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Reply All, which is a show about internet culture, um, they had a little misstep with the way that they handle a certain advertising arrangement. Um now if if you take that misstep and you apply it to let's say a real journalistic podcast, somebody who's actually trying to let's say break a story about, you know, the subprime mortgage lending crisis, and it's a for-profit podcasting company. How would you sort of overlap that native advertising experience into it and still sort of let juggle me, all let that? Let me just explain the, the
2: terms here. So native yeah. advertising is when the people who are actually narrating the podcast stop. They interrupt the podcast to essentially themselves present the advertisement. So if this, this podcast that people are listening to now has no ads. But if it did, I would stop and say, okay, now we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. And then I myself would say this podcast was sponsored by um, I think in, in, in this case it was Squarespace, it was Squarespace is the example yeah. that you're talking about. Um, reply all this show about internet culture. The mistake they made explain the mistake for us.
1: So the mistake was it was this basic backroom logistical mistakes. The person so it was a it was an ad spot for Squarespace in which they interviewed this kid who made a Squarespace site about Minecraft. And you know when they got permission from the, the kid's mom she held the understanding that this was actually supposed to be a segment for this American life. So this was just a bunch of – these are perfectly mistakes that could be missed. But it kind of hints towards the possibility of mistakes that could be made in the future. And that's the real trick here. About in other words, how that people look.
2: would mistake the journalistic part of the podcast Absolutely. with the part that's advertorial. Absolutely. And it's more of a danger and yet also, curiously enough, more accepted in this, in this realm, right, in this medium. Qualitatively speaking, yes. Shannon, you agree with that? This is a this is a problem. This is something that you and I, as journalists, could never do. You can't just stop one of your news stories and say this story is brought to you by so and so. And by the way, this is still Shannon Bond writing this. I mean, this is well, we, this is a moment of discomfort. I mean, this is a cause
0: for discomfort, right? We can't because the FT doesn't do that kind of advertising. But so, native advertising in a lot of different formats is becoming a very popular option. There's a lot of reasons behind it, but you know essentially whether it's in print or you know in in video you're having more and more content being put out there that is sponsored in some way by a brand, by a company, and maybe that, and that. But that also has a wide range of meanings. Like this is a whole other conversation, but right. has a wide range of meanings. It could be that the company's just paying for it. It could be the company actually had input. It could be the company wrote it themselves, with or without the input of journalists. And it's not always transparent. And it, it's also not always transparent with podcasts. Now, I think the guys at Gimlet have done something interesting with their ads, where. They've they've been fairly transparent about we're making an ad, but the way we're making an ad is we're going and talking to the company about their company, and we're and they try, they do a, a pretty good job of separating out saying this is the time that we are talking about the ad. However, given that they. The people who are making the ads are also the journalists. As Nick said, it can raise some confusion if the people who are being – you know, are a part of the ad don't necessarily understand that, no, this is an ad. This is not the other thing that we're doing. So it, there is a bit of line blurring there right. that can get confusing. And I think it's it's encapsulating a lot of the broader media uncomfortableness and, and questions about the role of native advertising. But at the
1: same time, that blurring the lines is – Exactly the reason why it's effective for the medium. And that's exactly why you can sort of bargain, at least at this point in time, a higher CPM rate. CPMs is what gets charged per thousand downloads, I guess, in the case of podcasts, right? Right now it's downloads. That could change in the future, but really depends on technological developments.
2: Right, but they, they can charge a lot more. Per download than say uh, a site could charge for page views or something like that, and
0: I mean and frankly this is not something entirely new to podcasting because on radio there are host read ads on regular radio and those command a higher price. And it's exactly because of that the listener has a relationship. It's somebody I've been listening to week in week out. Like I know them, I trust them, and so for them to tell me about this product, the product inherently seems more credible. And you know whether they're officially, even if they say it's an ad, there is a sense of they're endorsing it in a way. And I think that you know that that's totally legitimate. That's why the advertisers want to pay for it. But I think there are also legitimate questions that it of raises course, of course for there the are.
2: journalists. Right? But imagine, I mean, because I think about it this way. The the people who host these podcasts um, are okay uh, with staking their reputations on the stuff that they're advertising. And, And I think in a lot of cases, it's perfectly understandable. They use those products. Right. But imagine a different situation where, say, this podcast, if I were to interrupt and say this is brought to you by J.P. Morgan, you know, or this is brought to you by Bank of America. You know, I yep. would be thrown out on my ass, and rightly <laughs> so. Right? I, we could never agree to do something like that. Yeah, you have to um, really
0: think about who who it is and what the sort of the alignment is between the 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 publisher. Absolutely. Right. And the uh, I
2: want I want to move on because there's a, there's another another kind of model that I think some podcasters are using, and I think it's relatively new. It's nascent, um, and it's the freemium model, which has been around for a while in other forms, but some places, notably Slate, are using it now. Right, Nick.
1: Well, the Slate Media Group, which owns Slate Magazine, just launched Panoply, uh, which is their big play into the podcasting space. And a lot of their underlying logic in a way to develop their podcasting operations was to develop something called Slate Plus. And I think that at some point will be transferred over to the way Panoply works in the end. So Slate is not the only network that's doing this. My understanding is that two or three other Podcast networks, of which I'm blanking on which I'm allowed to say, which aren't I'm, I'm not allowed to say, uh, are going to roll out sort of similar freemium models in the future. And that's the, that's built on the understanding that you know you have a free offering, you have just the you know the the basic episodes that you listen to uh, every week or every day, depending on the podcast. And then at some point, if um, the podcast wants to capitalize on that relationship with the use the listener, uh, they, they will compel. I mean, they want request the listener to like pay a bit more per month or get a membership, and they will get access to You know, a wider range of things, typically longer content, typically deeper dives. And uh, the extra content tends to be a bit more personal. It tends to be a bit more host-oriented. Or give them, you know, like the way that Slate Plus does it, um, first dibs at live events. Live events also being a big part of podcast, you know, business models. So it's this access point. um, And it hasn't really been defined what best offerings in these freemium, you know, sort of tier of, of offerings. How best
2: to do it, you mean? What's going to yeah. make the most money or what's the most sustainable uh, business model, you mean?
1: Yes, and I think that also will depend on what the nature of the show and the nature of the host, the nature of the, the topics that you deal with.
2: Shannon, you, you do the Slate Plus thing, right? I mean, I do too. Do you like it? Do you think this is a good idea?
0: Yeah, I mean I so I initially signed up for Slate Plus. I read a lot of Slate and I was like, well, you know, this is something that this is an organization that I like and you know what, we should probably pay for media that we like if there's an option and I figured I'd test it out. Um and the 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 content that I consume most on there through the free the the Slate Plus through Slate Plus is the additional audio content. And I think it's has been it's been they've used it in interesting ways. They use it differently on different shows. Um, you know, and the and you can there's other there's stuff in there you don't listen to ads and then you get some a little bit of you know extra at the end of an episode or they'll have some content that is only for members. I mean other podcasts like Mark Marin's podcast, if you wanna listen to some of their archival stuff, so old episodes, you have to pay for that. So there as this Nick says, there's a bunch of sort of different ways people are trying. And we're just going to have to see. I mean this is all really early as kind of with everything we're talking about. There's a lot of kind of testing the waters and seeing what people are willing to pay for and what their – what the use case is. And I think we'll probably see a lot more of that sort of iterating and possibly things going away and new things coming in.
1: We all three are Slate Plus members. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I never read Slate, I almost don't. I only interface with them from an audio perspective. So it's I feel like it's the only way that I can stay in touch or compels me to go to go back is because okay. I paid for it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know.
2: Something else that's visibly new. The rise of podcast networks rather than just standalone podcasts. Now there are companies that make a series of podcasts. Shannon, why don't you tell us about a couple of them and whether or not you think this is gonna be a longer term trend, the consolidation of podcasts under under one umbrella, um, and then those, I guess, umbrellas compete with each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it is one of the indications of a, I think, maturing is probably too strong, but of you know of the development of the market. Um, so we've mentioned Slate's Panoply Network. Uh, there, there's a there was a network of there is a network of comedy oriented podcasts called Airwolf, and they launched their own sort of media company to initially to sell advertising in their podcasts, and then they started selling advertising for other podcasts that's called Midroll. Um and 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 then there's Gimlet Media, which was founded by a former This American Life producer and host
2: Alex Blumberg. Alex
0: Blumberg. They've rolled out two podcasts so far, they have more coming. So the idea here, there's sort of two there's two things. There's kind of on the content side and then on the commercial side. So on the content side, there's not necessarily a huge barrier to entry for podcasts. You can do it with fairly low rent audio equipment, but it's gonna sound better if you do it with better equipment if you invest a little bit in a studio. And so, hey, we've invested in a studio, you know, we can do we can produce podcasts, you know, whether for ourselves or for other people. That's the thing that Slate's doing. They're they're doing this podcast for the New York Times magazine, for Huffington Post and others. So it's you know, it's a kind of a good services business to have. It also on the content side, if you're doing multiple shows, it's less important that each of those shows gets to that like crazy serial level, which honestly is not going to happen for 99.9% of podcasts, but you can put together scale. You're not going to get a huge audience with one, but you can put together, you know, several podcasts, and you can slice and dice that for advertisers, and say, you know, we we know that women, you know, of a certain age, tend to listen to these three shows, and so you can buy across those. So that's where it kind of gets in on the commercial side too. Okay. So it's it, it's the same the same kind of idea of uh, of a, a conglomerate like a you know a Time Inc. that has several titles, and then that gives them some some clout with advertisers. Okay.
2: And Nick is is this first of all on balance a good thing for? consumers of podcasts or people who listen to podcasts and do you think it's a sustainable trend
1: i'm gonna abstain from commenting on sustainabilities because i don't have access to the numbers and consider this an open call to send me the numbers um and i but i do think that this is only very good for consumers the big problem with podcasting is not necessarily getting from one person who listens to podcasts to another podcast it's getting from somebody from zero to one somebody who hasn't really developed an interest or hasn't really experienced podcasts to get them to listen to podcasts the biggest problem with that is, that prevents them from doing so is curation and so with the development and with the rise of networks specifically and I'm, we'll get to Panoply in a second because they're doing something a little bit different um, it's going to help them have an initial base to work with. So let's say I listen to 99% Invisible, which is a podcast about design. It comes out from a Radiotopia network. Um, I really, really like 99% Invisible. I, I have a feeling that I would like things of this ilk. I just, you know, look around that network, either through going on their website or hearing ads and, and sort of like plugs for other podcasts with the network on 99% Invisible. So it helps in that in that particular update and education of, of the consumer. Now, what Panoply is doing as well is working with publishers to develop their own podcast. And that itself opens a door for another, you know, other kinds of podcast listeners to participate in the medium. Let's say I really like the New York Times magazine. I really like the Ethicist section. They have a new podcast, which is basically, you know, basically an audio version of the Ethicist, which is a sort of, you know, a very twee conversational podcast (laughs) between Jack Schaefer, Amy Bloom and a legal scholar. I forgot his name. Um, And that is an education for that kind of consumer. So this this is, you know, it's all about educating at this point. It's such a niche and strange and very young industry and medium. Anything that makes it easier for people to get into it it's only going to be so. In bad. other words, what the, what they're doing is they are offering a suite of services to other
2: companies who have not previously before specialized in audio content. So, if you mentioned the New York Times, um, obviously they have great reporters and they have great personalities and things of that nature, great writers, but they don't have maybe. Um, I guess they don't have their own, I don't know, audio producers or podcast producers or editors and
1: post-production people, things like that. That's part of it. You know, the argument can also be made that podcasting is pretty easy to do. But to do podcasting well is not easy to do. So that's also another part of it as well. You
2: mentioned other problems that podcasts still have. Technology remains a pretty big barrier as well, maybe because podcasts only recently became this huge cultural phenomenon that we're talking about. Or maybe there are other reasons more inherent to the medium. Shannon, what do you think? What frustrates you about listening to podcasts now and about the technology?
0: So, I mean, one of the big things is it's hard to share them. Um, it's hard to, or, or more specifically, it's easier for me to say I like XYZ podcast and I can put that on Twitter or Facebook. But actually, no, I was listening to this episode and this one bit of tape here I thought was really great. There's not a good way for me to share that clip. You mean like
2: if you were listening to a podcast and you really loved minutes 21 through 27 yeah. you can't just send that clip to somebody you have to send the whole thing You have thing. to send
0: the whole thing you sent maybe you send a link and then I don't know you know are they using do they use iTunes for podcasts like there's it's just it's a little messy right now it's not necessarily easy to direct somebody to the exact kind of moment that you want to be able to share the way we can you know very easily in print or even increasingly with video though I would say the same problem probably occurs in video Um, So there's that. And and that can be this can feel clunky. And I think that's sort of a natural extension for a lot of the both the people who are producing the podcast and people who are making podcast apps. Um, The apps are also kind of still very nascent. I mean, most so the vast majority of people are getting their podcasts through iTunes. That's I mean, Apple really just owns that market. You know, they were... Even the
2: podcasting app from iTunes was like a big deal when it came out exactly. not too long ago.
0: Exactly. But you know, so now you're seeing there's there's a whole bunch of other apps on the market. I use one called Casts that I was recommended by one of our personal tech guys at the FT um, to try out, and it's one of the very few apps that I've paid for. Uh, but you know, I, I like it. It's I it, the sort of the interface is a little more customizable. Essentially, like literally, I can reorder them, and I did like inner I like using it a little bit better so far than the podcast app but than the default Apple podcast app but I think there's still some kind of some space there that gets into kind of what Nick touched on in terms of discovery recommending me new podcasts you know things like shareability things like you know what the advertisers are going to want and are already saying they want which is yeah, I'm advertising on your podcast, but I want to make it really easy for the listener while they're listening, maybe to have like a link that they could click on their phone that would take them to my website or to their, you know, to my app or to a particular offer, you know, and all of the kind of this rich media that could be built into it. So I think there's. There's a lot of room there for for technological development and for interest in that. And that you're already seeing people talking about, like, these are the things we need to figure out.
2: Okay. Nick, you were nodding your head throughout a <laughs> lot of what uh, Shannon was saying. I take it you share some of her frustrations. What do you think podcasts could do better? What would you love to come out of the podcasting world that would make you happy?
1: What, technologically speaking?
2: Yes, or like, technologically speaking, not content-wise, because I know you're you're swimming in great stuff.
1: <laughs> no, nah, man. I mean, like, there's this... On every layer of podcasting right now, it just needs to do a lot better than it is right now. Like Just the way that it approaches itself professionally, te- technologically speaking as well. There's also a massive lack of self-understanding as a medium. And I think that kind of comports itself to the technological problems. So a big part of this conversation and a big part of the conversation I've been hearing about what do we need next for for audio is like, can we make it shareable? Can we make it viral? Can we sort of play... With audio the same way that we've played with digital media forms in, in text or in video. And I think the question really is is that what, what would lead to a greater development of audiences? For me, that it lies purely in curation. But a the question there is like how do you how do you sort of so let's say, like I mean, you know, let's say I want to share something and I wanna convince you, Cardiff, that Life of the Law, a podcast that I really like, is really, really great and you should really, really cash in on it. But what do I do? Do I take a moment and share it with you? Do I, am I really sharing that intimacy with you? What? Am I sharing the thing that makes that thing work to you? So I think the next, the first step that has to happen is to figure out what exactly that mechanism is for a user to tell another user, look, really get into this thing. Um, and for that to sort of make, you know unfold itself. I'm speaking very vague terms because I kind of fundamentally reject the notion that we should be using analogies that exist already in digital media and apply it to podcasting. And I'm, and I'm just hoping that there's some person out there you know, in the world. Some creative genius some creative who comes genius up with something in, new altogether. In a garage in Kazakhstan or something that's baking whatever this thing is. Okay. But it's really taking what the a core idea of and the core hook of an audio file okay. and sharing it.
2: I, I want to finally hit on one point before we get to the really fun stuff, which is when we talk about what our listeners should be listening to other than us, our recommendations This is, Shannon, I think so far a US-led trend, right? Yep. We don't have great numbers on how many podcasts people are listening to abroad. But put that into context for us. And after that, I want to ask about the fact that maybe one of the reasons this is a US-led trend is that there's still a tremendous connection between the podcasts that succeed – and radio and public radio in particular. I mean, that's the, sort of the jumping-off point that I see for podcasts.
0: Yeah. So, so you're right. International numbers. I mean, first of all, podcast numbers in general are pretty hard to come by. I mean, we basically rely on these Edison numbers, and mm-hmm. there are very few other sources.
2: And it's only downloads, and, it's not right. how well, many. Yeah. So, so,
0: I mean, the
1: metrics is a huge yeah, problem so, as well. Yeah. Right.
0: And that gets into, and that's a big concern for the advertisers because basically, what what we can see so far, what you can see from Apple, you find out is how many times did this episode get downloaded? That doesn't tell you if somebody. Listen to it. That doesn't tell you if somebody listened to it through when your ad appeared through the end of the show. Like through, you know that they started and stopped. Sometimes you know you can set your phone to automatically download podcasts. You could never listen to it. So there's a lot of questions there, and that's there's you know there's technological answers that have to you know that that are too wonky to get here. But you know you 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 can do things with like reencoding and and probably having better formats and so that is something that does seem it will probably work itself out as more serious money comes in here the advertisers are going to say yeah if i'm going to give you this kind of money like you need to show me this uh, so but you know just from the journalistic point of view figuring out how many people are listening um the numbers are hard to come by there's a, there's a company in, based in Sweden called Acast um that I spoke to recently and they they've recently expanded to the UK they're going to be expanding to the US they estimate something like 10 million weekly downloads in the UK of podcasts but you know that again those numbers, like, are just they could be really partial. It's really hard to know kind of how comprehensive that is. What was interesting with what I found when I was writing about cereal in the fall was that, you know, cereal. Not only topped the podcast charts in the U.S. and then in uh, English-speaking countries, the U.K., Australia, but it, it was on the top of the charts in Germany. It was charting in places like Spain. I mean, places that where English isn't okay, so even. So the these first things language. are traveling. Yeah, mm. some of them I think are traveling, and so there is the potential there. And all media now is much more accessible. This is digital media. There's kind of no reason it should just be limited to the U.S. Clearly, the U.S. is the you know is the biggest media market right now. So yeah. that's what people, you know, pe- certainly people in the English language, that's where they're going to focus. Sure. On. So
2: Nick, the other point, the connection to radio and public radio. We were looking earlier at a kind of top 50 list of the most downloaded podcasts of the last week. And in the top 10 in particular, there's a lot of podcasts there that have some connection either to a radio show that already exists or the people who made it were producers on a radio show that already exists. I mean, it's going to take a little while before this breaks, right? I mean, right now, this is still where all the movement comes from.
1: Right. Uh, I think the reason for that is because... Well, we think about podcasting. This relationship to radio is the same relationship between Netflix and television shows. So, the shows that come out of public radio, they already bring with them an existing audience that developed over decades or however long that that show has existed? And it's sort of it's it, on their part. It's the management of bringing their audience from you know listening to it on a stream on radio to just downloading it on downloading it from the internet. So there's already an, a pre-established brand identity and a brand relationship and a show relationship with these listeners. I mean, again, I keep coming back to like about audience development because I I don't I don't think that the audience of people who are native listeners to to podcasts like somebody who's heard of, you know, this week in tech who has never heard of, you know, this American Life. I don't think that 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 I, that group of people is very big. So I think that's why we see a lot of the the up the upper ends of the charts being these pre existing shows. You know, will that change? I'm hoping yeah.
2: it will. You guys are fantastic. So much for the business of podcasting. Let's talk about some actual podcasts that you think FT listeners would want to get into. I asked you guys to go heavy on the economics and politics and finance and business ones. But Shannon, why don't you start us off with a cultural podcast? Because I know you want to talk about this one.
0: I do. So one of my favorites, speaking of public radio, is from our local New York public radio station, WNYC. It's called Death, Sex, and Money. It's one of their few podcast-only shows. It doesn't air on the radio, but it was developed by one of their regular reporters, Anna Sale. There was essentially a contest within the station to develop a new product, and she pitched this they gave her the go ahead. It's a great show. It's literally about death, sex, and money. It's just—it's a great interview show. And if you—if you're at all interested in interview type formats, you know, in just like really in-depth conversations with interesting people, she gets really interesting people. She does a lot with. Uh, she gets listeners to send in there to, to send an audio recording. She'll ask a question. Tell me a story about, you know, how you've dealt with finances in your marriage, and then she'll sort of play. A whole mosaic of people talking about that, or she'll have like a really long, in-depth conversation with Dan Savage, uh, the sex columnist uh, out in Seattle, you know, about his relationship advice and sort of his relationships. And she really she touches all of these things that are supposed to be taboos in American culture. And they're done in a really fun, engaging, and often really actually moving way. It's one of those, Everyone, I'll be on the subway once in a while, and I'm like, oh, I'm actually kind of really gripped by this, and I hope I don't miss my stop. Nick, you so like
2: the phrase, good. all hail and a sale. All hail is, and a sale. It yours. is
1: literally the embodiment of intimacy baked into a show. Yeah. It is so good.
0: And and not to, I mean, so I love Terry Gross, who's a NPR, longtime NPR interviewer, but I think Anna Sale gives Terry Gross a run for her money as like the, just being an amazing interviewer. Like it's any journalist could learn so much from listening to the way she asks questions
2: yes yeah, she always she always seems to ask the question that i the exact question that i didn't know i wanted asked until after she asks it and then she you're right she does get people to uh, to open up in ways that you totally. wouldn't expect and totally. they also they they choose their guests very well oh, yeah. on that yeah. show oh yeah um nick let's go to you next uh culture, what do you want to recommend culture politics what do you want let's go with politics
1: um, I got to give a lot of love to Slate Political Gap Fest. It is, also, I'm not American, and I'm new, well, I'm not even newly minted American. I just had, I, mean, I just got my green card this year. Congratulations. Last year. Thank you. <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to understand you people, it's really, really <laughs> helpful to listen to that podcast. Right? Slate Political Gap Fest. It has David Plotz, formerly uh, Editor-in-Chief of Slate. Now he's the CEO of Atlas Obscura, which I still don't know what it is. Um, it also National has- National
0: Geographic for the digital age. Is that it? Ooh, that's Allegedly. a Allegedly. Right, Very cool. I don't
1: know. Um, Emily Bazelon, who formerly was of Slate, now is at New York Times Magazine, and John Dickerson, um, who is uh, you know he he's a political reporter, for CBS for Slate, um, and they just sit around a table and they talk about the big issues of politics every week, and it's so smart. It's it's very it's a little left leaning, you know, depending on who you are, but um, it's 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 really really interesting in the sense that it really brings out truth from conflict, and you know, three very agreeable, intelligent people conflicting over things. It's nothing better.
2: Worth mentioning also, that is not a narrative podcast. That is a conversational podcast of the flavor that we're having right now. That's actually really hard to do. They seem to have found the magic formula or whatever it is where – they argue a lot. They sometimes agree with each other, but often they disagree. They do so quite vehemently sometimes, but they never seem to take it
0: personally. Yeah. Right? Well, they've been doing it for like eight years, which I think is part of the trick there is that they really – they've got – they're very comfortable with each other. But it is. I mean at its best moments, it is like just sitting in on a really interesting dinner table conversation among people who, have, who are smart, who have often divergent views and who are able to express them in like friendly yet confrontational ways. Right.
2: It's interesting what you said, though, Nick, about how you're not American, but this was a great way to learn about America. I hadn't thought of it that way. I listened to it just because I think the conversations are so smart. But you make a good point that maybe this is a great way to learn about the U.S. and to get into really deep and profound issues of American policy and public policy uh, in a way that's
1: sort of fun and easy.
0: Approachable. It's definitely approachable.
1: You can get into those fights without getting into those fights yourself, which is really, really good. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Shannon?
0: So uh, I will recommend actually was one of the first podcasts that I really ever started listening to uh, back in 2008 when I first joined the FT in the midst of the financial crisis and sorry to everyone who hired me, didn't have any background really in finance or economics, no, no real strong grounding. And you know, I was dropped into this great place where I was learning a lot from my colleagues, but I also felt like I really needed to get a grip on what that was is going such on. Such a
2: wind up! I can't wait to find out <laughs> what it is. Uh,
0: so, so I started listening to, at the time, a new podcast from NPR called Planet Money. Again, one of the founders being Alex Bloomberg. This all comes back around to public radio and the same people. It's the same cast of people. Um, but they they do – they're now uh, – they do a couple times a week. Um, they've changed sort of over the years. Uh, and they just do really smart, sharp, not too long shows on all sorts of elements of finance, economics the global economy, the US economy, really interesting stuff on trade, really interesting stuff, you know, on manufacturing, on legal issues, just like anything that has some somewhat of a financial flavor to it. And the thing about it is, I think it's really appealing, both if you don't know much about sort of all of these issues and want to have a good primer on it. But I think it's also it's they're sophisticated enough that if, if, this, if these are areas that you actually know a lot about, they're going to tell you new stories, they're going to explain it to you in a way you may not have heard about before or take a different perspective on
2: it. Yeah, and unbelievably well-produced. Yes. They, they get back to like the first question, right? In other words, a lot of us, especially those of us in finance and economics who do this every day, we forget how jargon-laden is our conversation you know, and you know, everything we write about. These guys essentially strip everything away. There was a recent one I think by Adam Davidson where he says, Who had the first job, right? I talk about the labor market all the time. I cover the monthly jobs report. I just—I never thought to ask that question: Who had the first salaried job where there was a contract between an employer and an employee?
1: Actually, a fun fact about Evan Davidson and uh, Adam Davidson—I think this would be interesting to have the listeners or readers. He is advising on the adaptation of Michael Lewis's book, uh, *The Big Short* which stars uh, Brad Pitt and a whole bunch of people. <laughs> He's advising on that script right now, and it's really, really exciting to, to, to hear that an NPR reporter is you know, going to do movies or something. I don't know. Well, and, and
0: as he should, I mean, they did great reporting on the housing crisis and yeah. on all of those issues. But that's and on how some they prime started money.
2: the big pool of money, I think it was called, was their yep. hour-long explainer to the crisis. David Carr, shortly before he passed away, said he had one of these um, panels where he said the New York Times was sending all these Pulitzer Prize winners to try to explain the financial crisis. And I think he he called them these bing bongs from public radio, <laughs> totally nailed it. And I think that was that was quite
1: a high compliment.
2: Nick, your next one?
1: Uh, I'm going to plug the Longform podcast. The earliest podcast I listened to when I really realized that I really, really loved the medium. So it's three hosts, Max Linsky, uh, Evan Ratliff, and Aaron Lamer. Uh, Max and Aaron are uh, proprietors of longform.org, which is um, this, you know, website, digital media website, not really sure what it is. It curates, you know, the best long form writing that you can find on the web. And Everett Lif is a proprietor of uh, The Atavis, which is a digital magazine company. Um, and they basically sit down uh, with uh, magazine journalists. It has since expanded to include digital media journalists and just writers in general uh, and talk to them about their craft and talk to them about their stories, talk to them about the arc of their careers. It's really, really fascinating, and it's kind of—I mean, it's kind of biased for me to to give this recommendation because I'm—I'm a quote-unquote journalist. I write for a living, Uh, but it's also really again come back to the whole learning thing. uh, I listened to that whole bunch before I started applying to media jobs, and it just really helped me understand what, how this a person in this profession thinks, how a life is supposed to play out. You know, how basically, how am I supposed to live? My professional life. Yeah. It's a very good way to approach it, I think. All right. Yeah. We have time for exactly one more from each of you. Shannon.
0: So, um, we've talked a bit about some conversational ones, and we've talked about ones that are more sort of maybe narrative and storytelling. story-telling yeah. um, but I, I one of my recent favorites is a new one from Slate called Whistle Stop um, that John Dickerson, who Nick mentioned, is one of the hosts of the Political Gap Fest. Um, he's doing a podcast. Uh, this It's a, sh- a shorty. It's like 20 minutes and It's just moments in the history of presidential campaigns throughout U.S. history, and it's just him, and he sort of it's, but it's it's not you know it's essentially I guess it's him giving a monologue, but it's much more interesting than that. And he just he tells you a really fun story about. You know, uh, this moment he had this one about uh, Mitt Romney's father when he ran for president back in the 60s, you know, going on a tour of all the poorest cities in America. Um, He did another recent one um, about, you know, Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, and where that slogan came from. And it's just it's a great kind of like quick hit of American history.
2: And this is part of Slate Plus, right? Or is this part of just the normal Slate suite of podcasts that you can get no matter
0: what? It's part of the normal suite of podcasts. Okay.
1: Nick, last one to you. This wouldn't be good for FT listeners. Gimlet startup. It is the first podcast that they put out. It is essentially their marketing vi- vessel to help raise money, but to approach it less cynically, it is a documentary of how somebody starts a company in the tech digital age.
2: Not just somebody though. I mean it's, it's Alex, Alex Bloomberg,
1: Bloomberg right. from you know, of Planet Money um and it it sort of started before the company formalized that you know it, it came out like that the podcast dro- started dropping before the company became like official. Um, and it's a first-person narrative, which makes it really, really interesting. It's literally—it feels like a confessional. It feels like the diary of a, of a aspiring CEO attempting to build a company from scratch. And in this particular cultural moment, where everybody's sort of fetishizing Silicon Valley companies and you know, quote-unquote unicorns and all this money that's swirling out of nowhere, it is a fascinating and human look at. Something that often feels very inhuman, which is business, which is the creation of a company. Um, and this But is we have to
2: talk about his personality too because he's almost the exact opposite of like the stereotypical entrepreneurial badass or whatever. Mm. He's kind of just this likable, a little bit bumbling fellow who's super competent. At what he does and has this very rich
1: past. I mean, that's what makes it right. Absolutely, of course. I don't think he's that bumbling in real life. I think that there is that kind of little bit of disconnect. He's there's, actually, a um, there's a character. There's a character. <laughs> he's definitely playing character, but it's it gets like a human truth. I mean, all this showboating and like you know machismo bleeding out of tech CEOs. As somebody who used to like kind of really obsessively cover it this is just a wonderful reminder that you know much of tech journalism is basically marketing yeah I but I mean this goes back to
2: the that. to the format too right Shannon I mean we're talking about intimacy here's somebody who's starting a company but really what he's doing is he's exposing his own personal anxieties oh, yeah. in a way that a lot of us I think, can associate with. That I mean, we, he, that we appreciate.
0: He records conversations with his wife about like their finances. He records conversations with his partner about in their early discussions about how they were going to split up the company. Things that are really personal. You know, they they devoted a whole sort of late in the, in the season. They devoted a whole episode to like the problems they were having at the company and how unhappy all the employees were. And so, yes, there, it, it is it is its own form of marketing, and it is certainly very carefully positioned. But I I do think there was actually a great degree of like transparency. That was really refreshing, frankly, after sort of months and months of breathless coverage of like VC funding of everyone from you know Uber to Snapchat, actually to have a company sit down and kind of definitely be more transparent than most tech companies about this is our business model. This is how we're dividing things up. This is how – this is what's working and this is what's not working. And that's what's been really fascinating to see.
2: Okay. And I think it's almost the perfect place to close – a podcast episode about podcasting by recommending a podcast about starting a podcast company. On I brand. So that. I can't even. <laughs> I almost got lost even saying that. Shannon Bond, Nick Quad, thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. Thank right. you. To our listeners, go to ft.com forward slash Alphaville. There's going to be all kinds of links, things like that. Nick, what is your the website? I know you're, it's a weekly newsletter, an email newsletter, but it also has a website where people can go see, right?
1: Well, there's, just go to tinyletter.com slash hotpod, H-O-T-P-O-D, um, because I have not updated a website in a long time, and I do not plan to. <laughs>
2: Sign up for the newsletter then. Highly, highly, highly recommended. You've been listening to Alpha Chat, the conversational podcast about business, economics, and politics hosted by the Financial Times. This podcast was recorded at Argo Studios. Thanks very much to Paul Ruist who produced and edited
1: the show. See you next time.